Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. This is the second week of our uh, series that we're calling Greater Than, and just want to again point out the artwork that we see on the stage uh, that provides our series graphic, and then each week uh, we have a Greater Than uh, statement that we'll be focusing on, and uh, today is Love is Greater Than Fear. This artwork uh, is, uh, that's being featured is by Melissa Poppy, uh, so thank you, Melissa, for offering your uh, artwork to us. Um, and I should say that uh, of the three weeks... Uh, today was the most difficult to try to plan uh, and try to, what do I talk about when we are thinking about this idea of love is greater than fear? Uh, it was this piece of artwork uh, that Melissa did over a year ago uh, and that I saw uh, on social media and things uh, that really inspired this series. Uh, I felt like this uh, piece of art and the message behind it is so strong and so vast that it has a whole bunch that it could say to us. Uh, but that meant it was difficult to try to narrow down what is it that I want students uh, in this message. Uh, and so I want to tell you uh, what I often tell uh, students uh, in preaching classes, uh, and that is this. The, re- the reality is uh, sermons are never finished. They're only delivered. Okay? That was supposed to land a little bit softer than it did. Just, I'm just trying to warm you up. Uh, but what I mean by that is there's, con- there's like sermons are this thing that could be in constant motion. Uh, but today is one of those days where I've wrestled with it to this point and now it is being delivered. Uh, and so today's strong evidence that sermons are never finished, they're only delivered. So uh, let's turn our attention then to God's word. Uh, I want to read 1 John, uh, beginning with verse, uh, the second part of verse 16 and through 21. Um, I did not prepare this, the folks uh, to have this on the screen. I only told them I'd be referencing verse 18, uh, but have decided to uh, look at this in context and start us off with this. Uh, so let's just hear God's word today. First John chapter 4, beginning with the second part of verse 16. God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, this morning as we gather together and turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us. And most of all, God, I pray that today that we would leave having a greater sense um, of the vast love that you have uh, for each and every one of us. Uh, so of all the things that are talked about, God, may what we hear most and what we see evidence most is uh, your tremendous love poured out. Uh, and so God, help us to see and to understand um, and to perceive the truth uh, of your word and of these ideas. Uh, Be with us in these moments, we pray. Amen. Uh, On the surface, everything uh, appears normal. We go about our lives with relatively little resistance. Uh, We go to the office and work hard. Uh, We go out to eat with friends. We drink coffee. Uh, We participate in hobbies. For the most part, everything seems uh, pretty well. Uh, However, despite appearances of normalcy and security, 
uh, I think that we can face the reality that many of us are gripped with fear. Uh, Author Daniel Gardner says this in his book, The Science of Fear. He says, we are the healthiest, wealthiest, and longest lived people in history, and we are increasingly afraid. This is one of the great paradoxes of our time. Uh, And then sociologist uh, Barry Glasner, who is author of a book called The Culture of Fear, he writes this. He says, we're living in the most fear-mongering time in human history. And the main reason for this (laughs) is that there's lots of power and money available to individuals and organizations who can perpetuate these fears. Uh, In other words, fear sells airtime on television, fear sells medicines, fear sells products. Uh, When we are afraid, we need to face the reality that certain companies make tons of money, which means companies tend to be pretty invested in keeping us afraid. Uh, Neil Strauss writes this in an article that he wrote for Rolling Stone magazine. He says, for mass media, insurance companies, big pharma, advocacy groups, lawyers, politicians, and so many more, your fear is worth billions. And fortunately for them, your fear is also very easy to manipulate. We're wired to respond to it above everything else. Things are looking pretty grim so far in the message this morning. (laughs) The reality, though, is we are a culture that is afraid. We're afraid of so many things, and the fear uh, polarizes us. Um, But let me, before I get too far, I want to make a clarification. Uh, What I'm talking about this morning is a type of fear, but it's not the intense kind of fight or flight response that happens when there's an immediate threat. Uh, Fear that assesses an immediate threat um, and then, w- then the body and the brain kind of respond to that threat is a good thing, a healthy thing that helps to keep us safe, right? So the way I'm using fear today uh, is actually the underlying anxieties that we have of what might happen. Uh, more specifically, the social fears that we have about people of different cultures, different beliefs, different perspectives, and how this generalized fear of what could be has actually snuck into the life of the church. So that's how I'm using fear today, is this, these kind of generalized anxieties of people, uh, of cultures and people and perspectives and beliefs that are different than our own, and how that fear has snuck into even the life of the church. And so we tend to be this kind of culture that, that all, although on the appearance everything is, is okay, we live with sort of these underlying anxieties about what could happen, what might happen if or what might happen when. Um, and companies kind of build on this fear. They, they perpetuate that fear because it sells uh, products and airtime and all these kinds of things. But the reality is, is that our fear also polarizes us or separates us. It, there's a disunifying factor to our fear. And when we are afraid, we tend to move more and more to the edges, to the extremes, to the margins. Um, Sociologists have discovered what they call the law of group polarization. And the law of group polarization states that when people gather to deliberate about a topic for which they share a predetermined judgment, then the deliberation will only lead them to feel more strongly about the topic. 
In other words, so if there's, so we're going to deliberate about this topic, but there's kind of, we have a predetermined judgment about that topic. After the deliberation, the law of polarization says this group is only going to be cemented in their previous views. They're going to hold the same views, only hold them more tightly, hold them stronger. Okay? So it's, the, so it's the law of group polarization. Now, when we relate this to common fear, if a group fears the same thing, then after deliberating and talking and getting together, that fear and therefore their position becomes more extreme. And this is why, this is why when we are only surrounded by people with whom we fully agree, uh, and then we're going to leave every conversation with stronger, the same opinions, just stronger. And here's the, here's the other effect, and this is the real dangerous one, is we begin to have less empathy for those that have an opposing view. This is why it's so important in faith communities to not like so strictly homogenize, right? So it's just like we all look the same, we all make the same kind of money, we all think the same ways, right? Because that, fur, that further polarizes all of us into our same positions because of the law of, of group polarization. So one of, the, one of the beauties and one of the challenges of the kingdom of God and of doing church work is how do you formulate a group of people uh, centered around the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, but also kind of go about the hard work of contending for community despite differences of opinion, right? But it's one of the best and, and healthiest things we can do because if what fears we do have, and we all have them, when we bring those to the table, it tends to just further polarizes us if, if we don't have kind of differing opinions and views. Does this make sense? Okay, so... This polarizing power of fear is actually why, in recent history, politicians have begun building support by tapping into your fear and promising to be a savior for those fears. Okay? I promise we're going to talk to Jesus. A lot of you are looking at me real blank here, uh, but stick with me. I, I promise we're going somewhere. Okay? But, but what happens is politicians have learned that there's a polarizing position and a polarizing power of fear. So if we can tap into that fear, then it's going to solidify my base on either side. You with me? Okay? So, again, referring to the 2016 election cycle, Neil Strauss writes this in that same Rolling Stone article. He says, he says if this election cycle is a mirror, then it is reflecting a society choked with fear. Um, it's not just threats of terrorism or economic collapse or cyber warfare or government corruption, each of which some 70% of our citizens are afraid of, according to a Chapman University survey on American fears. But it's not just that. It's the stakes of the election itself, with Hillary Clinton at a debate conjuring up images of an angry Donald Trump with his finger on the nuclear codes, while Trump warned, we're not going to have a country if things don't change. So if we allow sort of the, that, that landscape to be a mirror back to us, what it's mirroring back to us is we are deathly afraid. That we're afraid of so much. And the more politicians can tap into those fears, it solidifies their so-called base and their support. And so let me just say this. One of the most Christian and one of the most countercultural things we can do as the people of God is learn how to have reasonable discourse with someone with whom you disagree. That is one of the most Christian and one of the most countercultural things we can do, 
is just kind of learn how to have reasonable discourse, right? But here, here's the reality, and here's, here's kind of where I want to dig in. The pent-up fear that we tend to have needs a place to go because no one wants to live life fearful. No one wants to live a life full of fear. And so that fear needs somewhere to go. It needs to be eased somehow. And so how do we ease our fear? This is where you enter the scapegoat, (laughs) okay? Enter the scapegoat. Scapegoating is when a person, group, or object is singled out and blamed for a problem or an issue. It's when a group of people places their own fear or their own anxiety on another group and essentially says, if they didn't do this or if they weren't like that and those kinds of things. And so scapegoating develops and strengthens the us versus them narrative. And when you understand scapegoating, you, actually, you see that it's actually all over the place in our, in our culture right now. Um, and so let's, if we're not uncomfortable already, let's take a moment to get even more uncomfortable, okay? Welcome to church. I'm so glad you're here. Um, so, so here, let's, let's get really uncomfortable. If, for example, uh, you might have uh, fear of job loss or cultural diversity or crime, you may be tempted to try to scapegoat immigrant communities. Are you with me? If you fear those who are different from you or changing values, you may be tempted to scapegoat the LGBT community. If you fear policies that you believe benefit people who don't deserve it, then you may be tempted to scapegoat the so-called liberal. Uh, If you fear loss of economic stability, then you might be tempted to scapegoat big corporations. If you fear policies that you believe will only benefit the rich, you also may be tempted to scapegoat the so-called conservative. And I hope with that list, I've gotten everyone just a little bit angry at me, okay? (laughs) But here's what happens. Scapegoating provides sort of this easy answer to complex problems. It says, oh, it's their fault, right? It's all their fault. And while this would normally be morally reprehensible, scapegoating actually becomes morally acceptable in two ways. Number one, we do it largely unconsciously. That is, the scapegoaters usually don't know that they're scapegoating. Instead, instead we often think that we're doing the holy work of ridding the world of sinners. (laughs) Right? And then the second way that scapegoating becomes morally acceptable, when it would normally be morally reprehensible, is the scapegoating group is dehumanized, or the scapegoated group is dehumanized. That way, it doesn't feel like you're mistreating human beings. And so the scapegoated group becomes this anonymous crowd, right? And the dehumanizing effect is complete when everyone in the scapegoated group is given a name or a label, such as animals or criminals. And this is why it's entirely possible to be personal friends with a member of the scapegoated group, but still participate in the scapegoating. Because the friend is the exception, but all of the others are fill in the blank. So, now that I've got you thoroughly confused or angry, did you know that scapegoating is actually a biblical idea? Like like it originates in the Bible. Scapegoating originates in the Bible. It's it's in Leviticus chapter 16. God gives instructions for the practice of scapegoating. He actually tells the people of Israel how to scapegoat, right? And it was this practice. It was the priest would lay his hands 
uh, on the escaping goat. And by the laying of the hands would be a symbolic way of placing all the sins of the people of Israel onto the goat. The goat was then beaten and then sent into the wilderness. And Israelites went home rejoicing, having had all their sins dealt with, and it sort of worked because they felt better, right? The problem was it didn't last. It didn't last. Soon enough, they would sin again, they would be afraid again, and they would need another scapegoat. Because the reality is the scapegoat never really dealt with the evil. Now, here's a side note. Scapegoating always makes the in-group feel better. Because whenever a, quote, sinner is excluded, it is a stroke to the ego and allows us to think, at least I'm not as bad as that. Okay? Let me say that again. Scapegoating always makes the in-group feel better because whenever a, quote, sinner is excluded, then it gives us a stroke of the ego and allows us to think, at least I'm not as bad as that. And so the question is, if scapegoating originates in the Bible, isn't it God's idea and a good thing? To which I would say, well, no, not really. Because scapegoating is bad, right? Scapegoating is bad, but God in his wisdom provided the people of Israel a way to deal with their sin without scapegoating other human beings. And that worked for a time, but eventually God would need to do something that actually dealt with the evil. Eventually God would need to do something that eventually dealt with the evil, which is why in Christ, God becomes the scapegoated one. You with me? I want you to hear. This this will change your life if you see this, okay? And I I wrestled all week with how to communicate this and how to get it across. But what God does in Christ is he becomes the scapegoated one, therefore revealing the evil of the scapegoating. The whole idea of, of our own fear and our own anxiety and our own angst being so built up that it needs a place to go, so we tend to place it on other people. This has been true in every culture of human history. Now, God, in his wisdom, initially gives the people of Israel a way to deal with that, work that through, kind of get the appeasement of sin through the process of scapegoating, but ultimately is going to deal with sin and the evil through himself in Jesus Christ. You with me? This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the transformative nature of the gospel. That God, in his wisdom, becomes the scapegoated one. And so, Jesus reveals, what Jesus reveals on the cross is that the church and the state, represented by Caiaphas and Pilate, are willing to scapegoat Jesus in order to carry their own shame and their own guilt. In other words, throughout history, it's been the process and and, and the tendency of both the church and the state to scapegoat folks. But Jesus comes to end all of that, to reveal it as evil and deal with the evil itself. So by becoming the scapegoat, the truly innocent Jesus reveals the evil of the scapegoating mechanism and then responds to, to the evil with forgiving love. And this is where love is greater than fear comes in. Where fear leads us to scapegoat and place all of our sin on other people and say, oh, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault. If they weren't like that, if they didn't do this, if that community this or that this, all this kind of stuff. 
where our fear leads us to scapegoat. Jesus shows us that the only thing more powerful than fear is self-giving love, where love is greater than fear. You with me? And so the power of the cross is this. God in Christ becomes the scapegoat. He takes on, he absorbs our sin, and that sin will in fact kill him. But as he is dying, he offers forgiveness, and then he defeats sin, death, and evil through resurrection. Jesus conquers fear with love, quite literally. Do do you see this, right? And, And we may be tempted to say, oh, same old stuff, just always talking about forgiveness and all that kind of stuff, right? It is the most powerful force in the world. That's why we gather every seven days to kind of talk about it and explore it and unpack it and and try to see how it can play out in our own lives and in our own culture. Jesus quite literally conquers fear with love or by the way of love. He shows us that the only thing greater than fear is self-giving love. The only thing capable of replacing fear is love. And so what Jesus shows us on the cross is that the whole framework, the whole framework of fear and scapegoating is anti-Christ, okay? The whole framework of fear and scapegoating is anti-Christ, which is why in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament scriptures, we have radical invitations to live a life motivated by love instead of by fear, Which brings us to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, uh, the first five verses, says this. Hebrews chapter 13. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to entertain strangers. And some translations say show hospitality. For by doing so, people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure and God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. What's powerful is that in this book, in this book of Hebrews, the author has established that Jesus is God's word made flesh. He is the hope of new creation. He is the eternal priest, and he is the once for all sacrifice. And so after establishing all of that, he then closes the book with instructions to love and care for one another, to show hospitality, to remember those who are in prison to not interfere with the loving bond between spouses and to keep your life free of the blind pursuit of money. I want to make a connection here that that it seems to me that these very practical instructions from the author of Hebrews is, is coming to us and saying, this is what it looks like to live a life of love and not of fear. For how easy would it be that instead of showing hospitality, to fear those who may be different from me? That instead of showing care for those who are in prison, to be fearful of those who have a past. (laughs) 
right? That, that there's all sorts of these ways that we can be motivated, we can be driven by fear, but instead are called to love. And if we're able to live in these ways, it is because of what Christ has shown us and what Christ has done for us as God made flesh. And then we'll be able to reject fear of others, the fear of stranger, the fear of not being loved, the fear of being alone, fear of not having enough. In short, living in these ways, we are no longer motivated by fear, but are motivated by love of brother, stranger, and self. Again, I think that 1 John puts it so well. Perfect love casts out fear. What I want you to see when you look at the cross, when you think about what, what, is, what did God accomplish on the cross, what I want you to begin to see is that Jesus Christ, it becomes the one who, for whom we pour all of our anxiety and, and worries and fears and let's call them what they are, sins. We pour all of our sins into him. He becomes the scapegoated one and then quite literally conquers that through self-giving love and forgiveness. This is, this is kind of how salvation works, <laughs> is that this is what Christ shows us. This is what God does. And so perfect love casts out fear. And when our lives are motivated by fear, it will inevitably lead to scapegoating, hatred, violence, racism, bigotry, and on the list could go. But when our, when our lives are motivated by love, it will lead us into love of brother and sister, then love of neighbor, and the pinnacle of it all, finally love even of enemy. You see this? I know that's a lot to take in, a lot to swallow. <laughs> As I said, sermons are never finished, they're only delivered, and that's the best I could do with these concepts. But let me try to sum it up this way. Fear leads to scapegoating. Scapegoating is anti-Christ. <laughs> and the only, greater, the only thing greater than the power of fear is the power of self-giving love that is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. That through the cross, it is, it is a mirror back to us of our own evil, and then the resurrection life of Christ gives us, through the Spirit, the power to live according to love instead of fear. And so my challenge for you today is simply this, to take time this week and to, to ponder, to meditate, to think about what are the ways in which my life is motivated by fear? And then to ask the Spirit of God to just allow His perfect love to cast that fear out. And I, and I recognize there's some nuance here that, 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 that it's not just sort of this easy answer thing, but it's a, it's a journey of walking with the Spirit of God and allowing His Spirit to move us, to form us, to shape us so that we might be a people more formed by the ways of love than by the ways of fear. Amen?
men. Let's say a word of prayer, and then I'll lead us to the table together. Heavenly Father, today I have done my best to articulate what I feel like is such an important message for the church. So I pray, God, that you would take my words today and that you would, by your Spirit, translate them into words that would find resonance with, with each of us as we listen. And God, I also pray that you would give us the courage to admit the times when maybe we're motivated by fear instead of love. God, in those moments when we may have the courage to face that reality, I pray that you would help us to know what it might be like to instead be motivated by love. For God is love. And in you there is no darkness at all. And so, Lord, help us to walk in your light. Lord, be with us as we discern these truths and their implications for our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.